Good morning. How are you today? Good, good. It's a, it's a good day to be uh, in the Lord's house always. Amen. But I know we're especially grateful to be gathered and uh, even if distanced, but gathered today. Uh, so thank you for being here. If you're tuning in online, I want to say thank you for tuning in. Uh, we're glad that you, you chose to worship with us. If anybody's visiting today and here or online, my name is Kyle. I'm the lead pastor here. And I uh, just issue a warm welcome to you from, from our hearts uh, and from the Lord uh, to you. Uh, we're, we're glad, again, that you're with us to worship and uh, hopefully to see Christ today. And uh, that's my goal is to show you Jesus. And I hope to do that uh, now as we dive into Acts um, we're going to look at Acts 25 and 26, just kind of, kind of survey those, do a flyover of what's happening there. And um, before I get into that, I just want to, I want to make you aware of, of this thing that happened this week and how it pertains to, uh, to this passage today and what we're going to be talking about. Earlier this week, the Christian community lost one of its giants. His name's Ravi Zacharias. I don't know if you're familiar with Ravi or not, but Ravi was a world-renowned apologist. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with him, I would say, uh, I would encourage you to watch his message. You can get it on YouTube. Uh, can man live without God? Can man live without God? Ravi's life changed forever at 17 years old. He had attempted and failed to commit suicide. He was laying in a hospital bed. He heard the words of someone reading the Bible to him out of the Gospel of John, you heard the words of Christ where he says, because I live, you also will live. And Ravi believed that day, committed his life to turning over every stone in his pursuit to understand the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as Lord. Now, Ravi loved Jesus' disciple Thomas. Now, Thomas is known to many of us and has been known throughout history as the doubting disciple because of his questions pertaining to the validity of the resurrection and his just unwillingness to believe until he could lay hands on Christ himself. However, Ravi called him the great questioner. You see, Ravi was always more interested in the questioner than he was the question. Here are the words from one of his colleagues on what made Ravi so special, as reported in his obituary earlier this week. It's a sentiment that's shared by many, many others. He said, he saw the objections and questions of others not as something to be rebuffed, but as a cry from the heart that had to be answered. People weren't logical problems waiting to be solved. They were people who needed the person of Christ. Sam Alberry, one of his friends and co-workers, one of the many speakers for Ravi Zacharias International Ministry, he adds this, he said he didn't preach an argument. He used argumentation to preach Christ. In this way, Ravi lived out the verse which he held so dear that drove him for decades, which is 1 Peter 3, 16, which says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Christians, by definition, 
make God's grace known to a broken world in loving ways. Ravi was so good at this. Just, again, perusing YouTube and watching some of his responses to questions and people who would, no doubt, trying to belittle him or mock him and his beliefs. It's amazing. Ravi was so humble. He was so bold. He was so reliant upon God. And I believe that those are the characteristics needed to make God's grace known to a broken world in loving ways, is that we be humble, we be bold, we be reliant. Further, I think these are the characteristics that we see in Paul in chapters 25 and 26 as he stands before Festus and King Agrippa and his sister Bernice and this large crowd who have gathered to hear his words. Let's pray before we get into that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you call all of us as Christians to be witnesses in this world, to to make known your grace to a broken world in loving ways. This is our calling. Father, would you help us do that? As a church, we often say that our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who grow in their faith in Jesus and their love toward one another. Father, help us to embody that as a church. Would you do the work in our hearts to help us love you more fully and love others as ourselves? Father, I thank you that we have examples like Paul here. We have modern day examples like Ravi. Uh, We have church history. We have brothers and sisters here in this church next to us who are doing these very things. They're making grace known in a broken world through loving ways, by being humble, by being bold, and by being reliant. I pray, Lord, that you would do that work in our hearts every day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So Acts 25 and 26 spans across 59 verses which detail the events of and the events between Paul's defense before Governor Festus and King Agrippa. Though I know that you would find my reading of all 59 verses in this slow southern drawl of an accent thoroughly invigorating and enjoyable and not in the least bit sleepy, I'm going to spare you today and I'm going to do my best to summarize what's happening and then to lay before you you its meaning for our lives. So in Acts 25, things begin this way. Festus has been replaced, I'm sorry, Festus replaces Felix as governor. Festus then travels to Jerusalem for a brief stint. While he's there, the chief priest laid out their case against Paul, and they begged him to have Paul sent to Jerusalem. Now, you must remember, this has been going on now for over two years. The Jews are still wanting to see Paul put to death. So Festus denies their request, he invites them to come with him to Caesarea. The day after he returns to Caesarea, he summons Paul, he brings him in. He's got the Jews there, they're standing around and they're bringing many serious charges against him. But Luke adds here in the narrative that neither, uh, he adds that they could not prove any of these serious charges they were bringing against him. He does this as a way to confirm Paul's innocence. Again, Paul's testimony is true. We have record of it. So Paul defends himself saying, neither against the law of the Jews, 
nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. So Festus is then like, well, why not just go plead your case in Jerusalem with the people who have the problem before you, or have brought this problem before you? But Paul, knowing what would happen to his life and knowing that he must get to Rome because God says, I'm going to get you to Rome, he denies the request. He evokes his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. He says, I ought to be tried here. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews. If I have done anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So he's saying I'm innocent of everything that they're bringing against me. There's no proof of any of these claims. As a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. Paul never feared death. It's the beauty of the statement here. He says, uh, again, I do not seek to escape death. If there's something for which I deserve to die, then I'll die. But as for these charges, I'm not guilty. You see, for the Christian... To die is gain. This is what Paul says in Philippians 1, uh, about 20-21. It's gain because we get to be with Christ forevermore. So death is not something that we should be afraid of. It's something that we should enter into with peace, with hope, knowing what lies on the other side. We should possess great boldness because of this great hope that we have in Christ. Now, what happens now is Festus is in a tight spot. If he lets Paul go, the Jews will either be enraged at him or they're just going to ambush Paul at some point and kill him anyway. But if he convicts him, then he's guilty of offending Roman law. It's, he has nothing to convict Paul of. So he grants his appeal to Caesar, which means Paul gets to go to Rome to bear witness about Jesus, which means God is continuing the plan which he laid out from the beginning. Several days later, a group of the king and his sister, still in chapter 5, around verses 13 through 22 now, Agrippa and, his, and the king, Agrippa the king, sorry, and his sister Bernice, arrived at Caesarea, staying with Festus many days, and as they're there, Agrippa fills him in on all the details of what's going on. Festus even makes sure to note that the Jews have brought no charges of such evil that deserves death as they, have, as they have requested. Rather, he says, the dispute was about their own religion. And, and more specific, it was about a certain man named Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserts to be alive. And then, I'm sure, likely intrigued, Agrippa says, I would like to hear from this man myself. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice come with great pomp, the text says, which just means a big show, lots of people. It's a pageantry of sorts. They entered the audience hall. There, the military tribunes are gathered around. The prominent men of the city are there. All the people have come with them, and Festus has Paul brought in. Paul stands before this big crowd. He stands before the governor, Festus. He dresses uh, Festus addresses King Agrippa and Bernice and the rest of the audience saying, You see this man whom the whole Jewish people petitioned, petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had nothing deserving death. 
And because he appealed to the emperor, I made the decision to send him. But I have nothing definite to write to Caesar about him. So I have brought him here before you all, especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. You see, Festus doesn't want to send him to Caesar without some charges written down as to why he's even bothering Caesar with this whole case. Chapter 25 just kind of ends on this cliffhanger here. Paul's standing in the midst of this crowd. The governor's there. The king's there. It's a massive crowd. And I'm sure silence. All of these things, interesting to note, are a fulfillment of Ananias' prophecy to Paul at his conversion where he says, you will testify about the Lord before governors and kings. Here we are. Chapter 26, Agrippa turns to Paul. He gives him permission to speak. Paul begins, as he does most addresses, just generous remarks to Agrippa, noting specifically Agrippa's familiarity with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And then he asks him, please listen to me patiently. Paul's speech here in the following verses is very similar to Acts chapter 22, where he stood before the angry crowds as the tribune was dragging him out after he'd just been beaten, and he asked for a moment to speak. He begins by recalling his Jewish heritage, the upbringing. He says, they all know, if they're willing to admit it, that I have lived as a Pharisee, which is the strictest party of our religion. I stand here because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain. They worship day and night trying to obtain it. And for this hope the Jews accuse me, O king. Why is it, though, incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why do you see this as incredible that God raises the dead? Once again, here Paul's message is consistent and bold. He proclaims the resurrection at every opportunity the Lord gives him. In verse 9, he begins to tell about his time spent persecuting other believers. They believe the very same thing that he does now about Jesus. He says, I gave the word to have Christians killed. I followed them to foreign cities to persecute them. In this way, what Paul is saying as he's looking at this crowd is, I was once just like you are. I used to be right where you are, zealous in this way. And Paul says, I was in the middle of doing such things. I was going to Damascus by orders of the high priest. And at midday I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me. And those who were with me, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Goads is not really language we use too often now but it's a cattle prod. It's a sharp stick used to move stubborn cattle. So Jesus is basically saying to Paul, I've been appealing to you, Paul, but you are like a stubborn cow. (laughs) But think about Paul's life leading up to his conversion. Think of all the claims he's making now. Think of all the sermons that Paul, all the sermons Paul would have had to have heard from Christians. Think of all the Christians he tried to persuade to blaspheme Jesus, yet none of them were willing. Think of Stephen's stoning and how Paul stood there holding the cloaks of all of those who were throwing rocks. 
Think about how he would have heard Stephen proclaim the risen Jesus before receiving these stones. Think about how he would have begged God in the middle of it to forgive them for their ignorant actions. Think about how he would have heard Stephen as he's glancing into heaven and he sees Jesus as the mob is taking his life from him. You see, God goes through great lengths to appeal to us. Yet often our hearts are too hard to recognize it. Then Paul tells the crowd about the commission that he received from Christ in verses 16 and 18. I'll just read this one to you. He says, Christ says to him, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a commission. Next, Paul tells about his faithfulness to follow Christ in this commission. He goes on to say, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I declared the resurrection to those in Damascus, those in Jerusalem, throughout the region of Judea, to all the Gentiles. And that's why the Jews seized me and tried to kill me. But all along the way, I have had the help of God. So I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Then Festus just interrupts Paul and he calls him a madman. He says, you're, you're out of your mind. The things that you're saying are crazy. But Paul's unhindered. He continues his gospel appeal to Agrippa. He says, I'm not a madman, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. And he just turns directly to King Agrippa. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa responds, do you expect me to become a Christian in such a short time? And Paul says, whether short or long, I pray that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Well, you know, except for these chains. I love that little addition. Paul's patience with his hearers and the boldness of the message are remarkable traits for Christian ministry. May we all learn something from Paul's example here. So then Agrippa and Bernice and Festus leave the room. They're conversing among one another. And they say, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And then King Agrippa, he adds this. He says, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Some question whether or not Paul should have appealed to Caesar I think Paul's appeal to Caesar guarantees a Roman escort to Rome. 
It's going to be protection from the plot of the Jews. They most certainly would have tried to kill him along the way. So, having summarized 25 and 26, these defenses here, what do we, what do we learn from what's taking place? Well, if by definition, Christians make God's grace known to a broken world in loving ways, then there must be some way of doing this consistently. There must be a, a pattern, right? There must be a process to making God's grace known in a broken world in loving ways. So then we must ask God, rather than just sit and ask one another, how do we do this, or, or sit dumbfounded by it, we must ask God, how can we do this in our lives? I believe the accounts of the early Christians that we have throughout Acts, not to mention Christians throughout church history, give us the model for how. I think the Bible tells us what to do. First thing is to be humble. Be humble. Looking at Paul's example here, we learn at least three things about humility in making God's grace known to a broken world. The first thing we see is that he addresses unbelievers respectfully. Now, this one's really difficult in a day and age where literally everyone sees it as okay to call people names who we disagree with. But Paul does not mock. He does not ridicule. He doesn't use the word libtard or Hitler or crazy. Even when his questioners mocked and ridiculed his faith. Like Ravi's example, he considered the questioner as more important than the question. Paul knows the brokenness that exists in people, and he knows the person who can help them. So we always live to proclaim Jesus to everyone. And in this way, he's fulfilling 1 Peter 3.16. It's worth reading again. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. Second, he recalls what it's like to be an unbeliever. Paul recalled his actions specifically as an unbeliever. He mentions that he mocked, he persecuted, he killed Christians, people who believed the very thing he believed now. You see, recalling your life before Christ not only provides some common ground of, I was once a sinner, unsaved, but now I'm a sinner saved, it more importantly gives you compassion for the lost. It helps you see them as human. It helps you see them as people who need Jesus. Then in that way, you can lovingly persuade others to stop kicking against the goads. You'll go the extra mile even to help others see the real Jesus. The same Jesus who welcomed you unto Himself with open arms by dying on the cross in your place, in our place. The third thing we see Paul do is he strives to exalt Jesus. Now, I think this one's really important. Again, in a day and age where we've always been a selfish people, but we're maybe more better at navel-gazing now than we've ever been before. Social media really helps us prop ourselves up as more than we are. So we should strive to exalt Jesus, not yourself. Paul's conversion is Christocentric. 
Your conversion story is Christocentric. This means Christ is at the center. In fact, at the center of all conversions across history and the ones that will happen in the future, you will have Christ at the center of those conversions. If we do not see Christ at the center of the conversion, then it is no conversion at all. It's something else altogether. It is Christ who saves, not anything or anyone else. Yet how often do we hear someone's testimony and it becomes more about them than the Jesus who saved them? Josh Burns said in our, we do a weekly sermon think tank where we get a few guys together and we just kind of walk through what we're going to be talking about this week. He made the comment this week that your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony is not the gospel. And we must tell others about the work of Christ in this life. Tell others about the work of Christ on the cross and His resurrection, what He's doing even now to save His people. It is not enough to say, I used to be blank, then I gave my life to Christ, and now my life is so much better. That will be part of it, sure. There will be blessings to praise the Lord for. There will be things that we can proclaim about the goodness of God and saving us, absolutely. But we're missing the story of the Gospel if that's all we say. If we leave out creation and the fall of man, the promise of a Savior, the virgin birth of Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, if we fail to call others to repent of their sins and turn to faith in Jesus Christ, then we have not shared the gospel at all. We've shared a plan on how to make your life better and nothing more. We're only making them happy on their way to hell. We're not saving souls. We must always exalt Christ above ourselves. The second thing we see, the second characteristic of making God's grace known in a broken world in loving ways is to be bold. Now, let's not conflate being bold with being brash. Paul shows us how to be bold in a loving way here. He makes God's grace known to broken people in a loving way. Christians are to be witnesses for Christ. We do this by showing a broken world their need for God's grace, which is ours in Christ Jesus. You see, through bold gospel proclamation, through God's grace, through a call to repentance and faith, people's eyes will be open to their need of the benefits of this grace. In doing so, they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. They may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in Jesus. What's at stake? The very souls of people. very souls of people you no doubt love and know. People you're close to. People you work near. People you're friends with. People whom God has put you in their life for the task of boldly showing them Jesus. Christian, brothers and sisters, won't you be bold? There's a question I have to ask myself often as I, I just wrestle with a fear of man for whatever reason. Is my reputation worth more than someone's soul? 
Is my likability worth more than someone's soul? It's a question that humbles me. So I ask you, what keeps you from boldly proclaiming Jesus to others? Is it a lack of knowledge? A lack of understanding of what the Bible says, of what the gospel is? Then study. Read God's Word. Come ask how we might equip you for that, how we might help you understand that. There are endless amounts of resources to help you understand God better in a way that you would want to communicate Him to others. And I'm so, so, so willing to help with this. Is it a lack of courage? Then pray. Pray like we see the early church praying earlier in Acts, where they prayed for the boldness to go on speaking even though they were under great persecution. And we read there that the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they went and spoke boldly about Christ. By their word, many continued to be saved. Are you unsure that God can use you? Kyle, you just don't understand. I, I went a long time without accepting Jesus as Savior. I've done a lot of foolish things in my life. Really ruined my witness. Or maybe you just think, Kyle, I, I, don't, I don't have a gift to speak, like just to talk to others about Jesus. To, it just it doesn't come easy for me. Maybe there's something else in your life you think, man, God, God could surely use someone else, but He can't use me. I have an assignment for you today. Would you go read 1 Corinthians 1 this afternoon? What you see there is that God loves to use the weak in strength, the poor in spirit, for His causes. He loves to do it. You are not a burden to Him if you are weak in strength and poor in spirit. If we go to God and we say, here's my need, Here's where I need you. Here's where I need your help. His heart opens up in full to us. He does not recluse. He does not close himself off. He does not see needy people as a problem. Do you understand that? I mean, do you, do you really understand that? Go to God. Go to Him. Receive that boldness or that love or that wisdom or peace or joy. Whatever it is you need, go to the Lord. He does not see you as a problem at all. third thing characteristic we see here is be reliant 
want to make God's grace known to a broken world in loving ways, we need to be reliant. I kind of was stepping into this point already, but let's go ahead and round it off here. Paul made the comment, to this day I've had the help that comes from God. I mean, is there a better way to sum up our Christian walk than to stand and to look at one another and say, to this day I have had the help that comes from God? Think about your life. Think, of, think about all the problems, all the issues, the highs and the lows, the times where you were on your floor crying before the Lord, wondering if He could hear you, wondering if He cared about you, Wondering if he saw your pain and your problem at all? Thinking maybe God's too big for this? Or think about the moments where you were just rejoicing because God had done something so magnificent in your life. You're just willing to, you're praising him. You're the person at home group that's given the wind story that's far too long, but everybody's really excited about it because we want to rejoice with you. Right? Think about those times and then think about how I might sum that up. I would say, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And you would too. You would too. Because God never leaves and He never forsakes. He is always with us. I think I want Psalm 139 again. Though I make my bed and Sheol, you are there. Though I ascend to the heights of the heavens, you are there. Though I try to hide myself from you, you see me. You know me. You formed my inner parts as I was in the womb. You've designed me to act the way I act. You gave me my personality. You know the number of hairs on my head. You bottle up all my tears. Brother and sister, you are not not known by Him. You are not overlooked by God. But I suspect that because our hearts are so prone to wonder that we forget to rely on Him. We start thinking, okay, the training wheels are off now. I've got to go on my own. And God all the while is running right beside the bike keeping it up. He's never leaving. He's never forsaken. Amen? I hope you sense joy like welling up in your heart at that thought. Be reliant on God. Have you trusted Him to help you? Have you asked God to help you? Are you relying on God to help you? And if you are, continue in that. Because the mockers, the ridicule, the rejection is coming. Satan will not cease to launch fiery darts your way through the words and actions of people who are ignorantly doing his bidding. He won't stop. So stand firm, be humble, be bold, be reliant in the face of opposition and trials. The Lord will use every bit of it to strengthen your faith, 
to embolden your witness, to save souls, to continue glorifying His name in all the earth. Brothers and sisters, rely on Him to do it. You want to know the best way to rely on God? You want to know the best way to keep relying on God? Prayer. Prayer is the expression of desperately dependent children to their father. It's, it's God saying, come to me and tell me what's going on. It's us saying to the Lord, Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name above every other name. I exalt you. I know that you are the source of hope and help right now. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not only on this earth, but in my life. And Father, would you give me today what I need? The bread to be sustained? Your word. And would you help me, Father, to forgive those who have sinned against me that I might know your forgiveness? And Father, would you protect me from the evil one? Deliver me from his temptations. Amen? This is what it looks like to rely on God. So pray. Here we see Paul prays for his hearers that they may all, both small and great, no matter how short or how long it might take, come to know Jesus Christ. Pray for your hearers. Pray for your family members. Pray for your spouse, for your children. Pray for your co-workers. For the people that you see day in and day out. Pray for the Lord to use you in their life. Pray for humility. Pray for boldness. Be faithful to do the work that is in front of you each day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Rely on God to take your ordinary life and use it for the extraordinary purpose of gospel gain in your home, on the job, in the grocery stores, and restaurants where you play, and everywhere in between. Rely on God to give you the increase while you plant and water the gospel in the lives of your loved ones, and your friends, your coworkers, your enemies. Let me say that again, your enemies. And even strangers who He might lead you to talk to. And always, always, always remember the words of Christ Right before He ascends into heaven, He gives the great commission to the disciples. He tells them to go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to do all the things which I have taught you to do. And what does He tell them at the end? He says, remember, I am with you always. I'm with you always. The Lord is with you. Even to the end of the age, he says. Brothers and sisters, let's do it. Let's make known God's grace in a broken world through loving ways as we humble ourselves in our presentation, as we 
are emboldened by the Spirit in our proclamation, and as we are fully reliant on God in all things at all times, especially for the increase of that work. Amen.